I've got zero things to add because everything I work on is perfect. <laughs> yeah, when Jim yeah. leaves, it's perfect. So, yeah. Yeah, I've never, I've, I've never piped uh, chilled water to the condensed side of a chiller before. It's, it's never happened. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I, I don't I, know if we're exactly like that level, like it was just bonehead mistake type stuff. But wow. It's, you you guys want to hear my non-building biggest bonehead mistake ever? I didn't make this mistake. I just I just observed this. I I didn't uh, make this mistake in like an industrial facility or commercial or whatever. Uh, or residential, residential, yeah. residential. Okay, uh, farm. farm. So we in my concrete business we sell these uh, stock troughs tanks that you develop a spring by digging a a hole, lining it with clay. The water runs into it, you gravity out of it, right? Build a head wall out of clay, gravity out of it, and then pipe it into the bottom of one of these tanks and put an overflow line in it so the tank stays full all the time. That makes sense to you? You guys understand that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Completely. So you find a spring, okay. So I, we get a call, okay, we need a stock tank to deliver to this location, blah, blah, blah. And usually when you set the stock, stock, stock tank down, it has a hole in the bottom and there's room for two four-inch pipes. So while the tank's being set, you put a 180-degree, two 90s across the two pipes so your site's not all wet, and you set the tank down over those two pipes, backfill the hole with hydraulic cement, and then, okay, we're ready to go. You know, it starts to fill. So I get there. The guys, yeah, we, hey, can you give us a hand fill on this? We know we don't, we've never done this before, blah, blah, blah. So I mix the hydraulic cement. We put it in, trial it in. It's dry. It's set in five minutes, literally. If you've ever used hydraulic cement, it's a miracle material. And then you pull the inlet pipe off, put some glue on a standpipe on the outlet side and dump it off. So we do that and put the standpipe in. And this water that smells like it's awful starts coming out. And I said, this smells awful. I said, yeah, it's probably, this, that well's a little stale. I said, okay. So I'm watching for three or four minutes. I said, this does not look like a, a spring at all. They said, oh, no, it's all fine. And what's the next thing that comes out? Oh, okay. A piece of toilet paper. Piece of toilet paper. I said, I got to get out of here. See you guys. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> oh, man. We found a wet spot on the property, developed it, and that was the... That is oh, disgusting. <laughs> no thanks. Well, so that goes beyond them never doing the part they were helping. Oh no! That just goes back to wow. What a gem, yeah. though, right? Oh my gosh! <laughs> What's the next thing that comes out? <laughs> TP. That's oh. disgusting. Oh, yeah, good story, Mark. <laughs> but I think that's I think it's very related to you know the type of work we all do, you know teams, yeah. different trades, doing something that hasn't been done before. <laughs> Mistakes are bound to happen. You'll get that on these big jobs, or even the small ones, or the small ones. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems podcast. I'm your host Clayton Ferrier, and here with me today is Nick Taliska. Jim D. Pasquale and Mark Sankey. In today's podcast, we will be discussing some of the biggest mistakes being made in buildings right now and technologies to avoid. Um, so, gosh, this is going to be like this is a really all encompassing kind of podcast. You know, uh, we could talk about a lot of different things, and I think we will. 
Uh, first things that kind of come to mind, like, is there, you know, applications, what applications of technologies stick out to you guys, you know, in, in today's facilities that you're like, well, you're doing that wrong or it shouldn't be this way. Um, you know, I, you know, we have a, a list in front of us and I don't know if I, what you guys think about that, who wants to go through it and who wants to add to it if there's anything to add. I have a question. Okay. <laughs> New construction or existing facilities? I would say both. You know, like this, it can go anywhere, this discussion. Okay. I have a confession. I didn't look at the list. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm ready. Oh, boy. Okay, well, why, don't we start, why don't we start with maybe like recent, you know, not like the biggest ones. Maybe they'll come to us, but I mean, I see a lot of VFDs. Uh, you know, that are thrown everywhere, primarily on well, non-variable loads. You know, that's okay. Wow. That's a good thing. one. So that's a good one. Okay. But uh, so l l let's talk about that, Nick, please. I think that's a, that's a good application, but let's, let's talk about, okay. In a situation where I have a non-variable load, but I have a motor that is being throttled either by, uh, you know, inlet or, you know, a, a PRV, uh, balance valve, uh, whatever, that some device that is only wasting energy, many times it's less expensive to put a VFD on that gives you a unity power factor and you can just turn it down and save the energy for less money than doing some other technology that doesn't do anything but waste energy and never saves you money. Completely agree. And if that is the intent going in, I think that's probably a good application. But, but, but if you're, what, what if you're, you're saying is modulating it, right? They're like, yeah, well, it's constant volume now. We can put a VFD on it, do some changes, without really. I mean, pretty much where I stand in all this is anything's a. So what was the first part? We're doing bad application. No, yeah, bad applications yeah. of technology, whatever. Uh, anytime things aren't thought through, I mean, those are the mistakes I see the most. Where, I mean, I could talk about lighting. Who would argue that lighting's a bad technology? But when the expectations are not set properly and then and mistakes are made, lighting can be a very bad application and not, you know, the uh, the investment it was intended to be. But anyways. I'm gonna I'm gonna back up Nick for a second on the pumping. Okay. You, you know, I I agree with both of you. I, I you know, I think I've said on previous podcasts it it can make sense to put a VFD on a constant flow application, depending on the, the nature of the system, you know, whether it may be seeing different uh, pressures, differential pressures, but it has to maintain a constant flow, you know, things like that. Um, but if you're using it as a, you know, like a, a crutch, you're going to oversize your pump and then rely on your VFD to turn down, you know, your, you're always going to be being penalized like right off the bat. DFDs aren't hundred percent right. efficient and depending on how much you turn down and the curve of the VFD, you know, you'll be losing some efficiency. So, I mean, if you size a pump, you know, pretty close to its duty point, um, you know, and, you, and I agree, Mark, yep. like you have to be close, but if you're not close and you clamp down on the triple duty valve, then those, that those efficiency losses are going to exceed that of a VFD. So, I guess I agree with both of you. You know, in different situations, I don't, I, I don't 
sometimes, you know, and I'm guilty, I, I spec VFDs a lot. I rarely spec. I feel like the only time I spec a constant speed pump without a VFD, if it's a really small circulator and it's just almost negligible. Yeah, you know, like yeah. fractional horsepower. And the VFD pump, pricing but. curve has has you know gone down so much over the last. I mean, it seems like every couple of years you see something, yeah. but, and it may change again. But uh, you're definitely not the you know ten years ago, fifteen years ago, what it cost to put a VFD on a pump. So, so uh, I'm gonna uh, jump in one more time on the VFD. Um, no, I, I mean, so this comes back to the. Uh, incumbent responsibility of the designer to ask questions like, "Do you have future expansion requirement?" Yeah. In which case, you not only oversize the pump, but you oversize the pipe, and you oversize, you know, the uh, new connection connections for another chiller. If we're talking about chill water connections for another boiler, and at that point, okay, it makes sense to put in a VFD because we know for three years we'll run it this load. And then when we add on or we build phase two or three or four, you can step up and you don't have to tear out all the primary piping and you don't have to replace the pump and all those things. Great point. So who's our resident boiler expert? Mark, Jim. Well, I go back to, you know, you know what the first boiler was, right? It was just an open vessel in a castle that would use a convection to move water around. So I had those when I was a kid. I'm sure I can opine something well so you know a, a thing to discuss i think it comes up in a lot of facilities and maybe it's just due to eight like i don't know how often this happens for new facilities but you know utilizing non-condensing boilers for um i guess hvac applications or any that you could use a condensing boiler with um do you do we see this a lot like to me that you see that in in old building you know pre-condensing boiler time i don't know like i feel like everything aside from like i don't know what the threshold is but if you can put a condensing boiler and i'm assuming it's like the vfd thing like why would you not i don't know the cost is well i think i don't think you see it i have never seen it in new construction where a new a new non-condensing boiler is used in condensing applications but i have seen it many times where uh you know building operators are trying to be more efficient and they continuously look for a, a lower supply water temperature to the point where right. the boiler is running in condensing mode. It should be, but it, no, it is not. running in, it's running. Oh, you're right. You're right. Mode. You're right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it's uh, the return water temperature yes. is so low that that boiler is in condensing mode, like it or don't like it. Yep. And that'll hurt a non-condensing boiler we, we did a job in rochester not too long ago maybe 15 years ago i mean that's not too long ago to me where the boiler stacks three big boilers uh actually were supported on the roof and guy wires on them and they rotted off <laughs> wow fell over yeah no that'll happen you know i i, I think with condensing boilers the, the most common thing i see is just the misapplicate, uh, I don't know if it's misapplication or uh, misinterpretation, maybe. I've seen I don't know some where you're going with it, but they're just not being ran in a way in it or designed in a way to take advantage of the efficiencies that condensing boilers can offer. Um, you know, like we've said, you, the lower mm -hmm. the temperature, the more efficient um, your boiler is going to run. 
And, you know, a lot of times people talk about efficiencies in the high 90s. And right. you're only going to see that with uh, you know, return temperatures well below 130 degrees. Um, you know, when you're, when you're 140 is like that magic number a lot of people strive to get to because that's around where you start condensing flue gases. But if you look at a curve on a condensing boiler, the efficiency curve, um, you know, a lot more goes into that, like the O2. Excess uh, air, right. You know, how much yep. you're loading the boiler um, at part, you know, at part load, they run much more efficiently. So like when I walk into, you know, it's like a new facility that's running the old school, like 180 degree supply, 160 degree return. I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, that, and I've seen that more than once. Um, and, you know, if you look at life cycle costs, cause you have to take everything into account. If you lower your return temperature and get a bigger Delta T, you're going to have smaller pipe sizes, smaller pumps, um, less electricity running your, your pumps, now you're going to have to pay a little bit more because with a higher delta T, you're needing bigger heat exchangers on your terminal devices. But it doesn't take long to realize that, generally speaking, on most projects, you're going to see a significant savings if you, you know, design around a much bigger delta T than you know a 20, and get some lower return temps back um, to your boiler. I I think that's part of the problem too with condensing boilers is is the overstatement of how efficient they are and for how long. Oh yeah. Yeah. See that number used from the literature and they plug it in. I mean there seems Mm -hmm. to be a lot of great applications for it, but again, there seems to be some bad applications, but I would think you know, like supplementing, you know, water source heat pump loops, do you see a lot of those applications? So again, it seemed like to be for a while there. It was the the answer to uh, every boiler room, at least in public education, maybe K through twelve. You know that it was difficult to get new boilers in because the building was built around it and such. And and that's a big reason why you see those in retrofits. And yeah, I was putting twelve you, of these guys. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you you could wheel them right through a man door, yeah, sure. right? Versus the old cast iron giant you know, steel uh, fire tubes that are just, you can't get those in or out nearly as easily as these small condensing boilers. Um, so yeah, it, so yeah, those might, and you're tying them into a system that was designed for 200 or 180 degree supply with the 20 degree Delta. And, and you know, it, it maybe at that point, it's still the best option, even though you're not, necessarily getting the most efficiency out of the boiler but considering everything else right you know it, it still make makes make sense well yeah and the fact that you're existing um, then you're setting boilers. yourself up for the future like if you ever do other upgrades further down the line of the system now you have that in place to where you you could redesign you know some of your terminal equipment to handle lower return temps sure. another great axiom of all this stuff you know you can't just like you can't just throw a vfd on a fan without considering how it impacts the system how the rest of the system is able to handle it. Same would go for, you know, condensing boilers and not giving it the same thought. It's like putting in lights and not, you know, understanding what light levels are required by occupants. Well, and it, it's exactly right. And Nick, it, I had the opportunity to sit in on a presentation by ESCO a few years ago in Pittsburgh. And basically the, 
the condensing boiler program was going to save, I don't know, $400,000 a year in five different buildings. And so I'm, I'm the owner's rep, raised my hand. Are we changing all of the air handling unit coils and all of the unit ventilator coils? No. I said, well, how do we get to um, the designed heating output on a design day of zero degrees? Well, we're going to change the flow. I said, how? How, how do you get there? The heat exchanger size for a specific delta T at a specific entering water temperature. Right. And yep. within 15 seconds, they were like, uh, I don't know, we'll have our engineers get back to you trying to basically get back on track. But it told me that the whole thing was a, a load of eyewash that they expected to present to the board and everybody be, you know, googly eyed at the dollars and say, let's go. Don't worry, we'll sort sort that out there in commissioning. <laughs> well, well, we're going to apply advanced controls. Oh, I was you just segued right into the next. That's exactly <laughs> what, right? Now we're gonna we're gonna let our control system fix this, right? And, um, exactly. I would imagine you guys have plenty of stories of that occurring in facilities, right? People trying to utilize controls to um, fix a a bad design or you know bad equipment. Um, I, again, I don't specific examples. If anybody has anything kind of on that uh, on that front, outsider reset comes to mind with uh, you know turning down boiler systems, you know based on outside air temperature, you know to a point where you know then sometimes you can't maintain the building or get it up to to load in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I, you know, I'm assuming there's been a lot of advancements in that, uh, but a lot of it in the past seemed to be very, I don't know, proprietary, or it was tough to dig in to figure out, you know, exactly how is this trying to work, you know, similar to like an optimum start-stop. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of difficult to get in and figure out, you know, except from looking at the data and saying, this doesn't look like it's working. And... Honestly, it'll never work. You can't transfer enough BTUs if you're not running at the design temperature with the design load. I mean, this is like the Monty Python skit where you, you know, and I've been down the road where the controls guy, you know, in a, in a performance contract is trying to tell me this is what we're doing. You show me the math. You just want to pull out the parrot and start whacking it on the counter saying this parrot is dead. It, it's just unbelievable that... <laughs> I mean, that's how it goes sometimes. You, you have the controls guys out there who are not design engineers, mm-hmm. um, you know, don't know the heat transfer calculations. And the poor guys are trying to explain to you that they're, they're doing their very best, but the mathematics and physics don't support the, they'll never get to the objective. It's a, it's a waste of energy, time, all of that. But they're giving it the good old, you know, their best effort. <laughs> I don't know if this counts. Maybe they're using the control system to do this, but I feel like whenever there's a problem, uh, you know, whether it's humidity or there's a billion different problems, but let's just shut the outdoor air dampers. Maybe that's a that's a great I mean, example. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. 
and especially when it's the advanced building control system that's being used to control, you know, shut the dampers with just like a finger. That that's kind of what I'm getting at. We have all these super advanced algorithms going on. You know, ASHRAE has their new, um, you know, guidelines and standards for optimizing ventilation. You know, dynamically resetting, uh, you know, damper positions throughout the day based on occupancy and. But then a lot of facilities are shut it because they're like, oh, you know, if we hit too much humidity or, you know, we're going to save energy. That's <laughs> a good one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I recounted on an earlier podcast where uh, ESCO wanted us on their team. We'll go and do a walkthrough in the building. Yes. And it, you know, the, the actual wall that had the outside air dampers in it. So the, the uh, outside air intake were, were in the mechanical room, which is a plenum. And the outside air intake was boarded over with a dowel board and then a layer of drywall. That was, a, I mean, I said, there's nothing else we can do here unless the owner, who was actually a property manager, um, you know, it was lease space, wants to accept an adjusted baseline that shows what they really should be using. And that, you know, all they care about is real dollars, not any, you know, adjusted baseline. So it never happened. Well, and to Jim's point, and Mark, I know we were kind of discussing this um, earlier, is that it goes the other way too. Like, you know, overriding valves to fully open so you can, you know, whatever, make heating or cooling requirements or attempt to for whatever reason is wrong in the system or the facility. And that stays, right? So then you get six months down the road, completely different season, and your perimeter heating loops are on all the way because what you know for whatever reason you thought you needed to override it and turn them on or well that, that kind of segues into what I, I would consider you know not just bad construction but uh bad operations where yes there are you know i would i, I recount it i counsel it there needs to be a quarterly comprehensive review of the BMS by internal parties to say, okay, we, we made overrides, we made changes uh, for, you know, um, schedule changes, set point changes, overrides, you know, based on a meeting, who knows what, mm-hmm. and let's go through it, soup to nuts, yep. and make sure we're operating the building as intended, not as we th- made a change to operate and never change back because those errors get compounded so quickly. And I, there's just a, you know, a plethora of stories about that where people make a change, forget about it or transition out of a position or whatever. Ooh, and yeah. the next thing that, you know, that change is permanent. It's inherited by somebody else. That's how, and it becomes how we always did it and becomes the new de facto normal operation. Well, Failure to do this is what spawned the retro commissioning business. I mean, hmm. you either do it quarterly as a regular, you know, okay, I, I change my oil every X miles. If I don't, I know that every three years I have to send my, you know, car to the shop and get a new rebuilt engine from Jasper Motors. Pick your poison, right? So, you know, taking it a next step further, but actually, you know, looking at it smaller too, it's so easy to to make a, a quick override. I mean, like Mark's example kind of to me is like months down the road, right? Or years down the road and something gets adopted. And, but like, you know, oh, we're going to we're gonna fix 
this compressor on and you know four weeks go by and you're like why is whatever <laughs> cycling happening right and you're like well it's because we we overrode this for whatever reason maybe you know obviously with good intentions but you know in the short term too all of that and then you spend how many times wondering how long wondering why is this doing that and you're looking at everything and then, oh duh i left this override on so well, are speaking from experience this just happened what two weeks ago right? <laughs> yeah i know right that's <laughs> but like you know your 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 point is kind of on the long term time frame but you know even short term like that you know wasted time and you know people want, scratching their heads why is it doing this duh cuz we left this on or we overrode this or stuff like that so right um yeah those mistakes effect. yeah oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> I agree. What about like, um, again, and I have, I'm, I'm alluding to this or bringing this up because I, I guess I have recent experience, if you would say, but over, I don't know if you'd call it over engineering or oversizing, right? I mean, that's more on the not operations side, but just the engineering side, you know, how easy is it to slap how many tons of rooftop cooling on a building and you don't, and you need half of that. And now, we have issues too, right? And that can happen for um, any piece of equipment, really. Well, it's either, I'd say it's either over-engineering or lack of yes, engineering. I agree with that. <laughs> right? So there's a lack of engineering. You might have some guys out there doing like square foot per ton rules of thumb, which you should not be doing that. Right. You should only use those as like a Guideline. sanity check, yeah. right? I mean, those are like, averages over multiple spaces mm -hmm. when you, you can't use that to size individual spaces because you don't know how many windows and which orientation mm -hmm. how many people what the space there's just so many variables that go into properly you know sizing cooling and heating loads um so yeah that's a, a lack that's the lack of engineering or someone just <laughs> and that's always tends to oversize things I'm, I'm um, and then over wash over me that was beautiful like over engineering <laughs> is often, you know, somebody says that's a 50 horsepower pump. They only need 25 horsepower over engineered. Well, that's a euphemism yep. for, no, yeah. there's probably very little thought that went into this. Yep. Don't, yes. don't give them that much credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then on the other end, if the, you know, engineering was involved, what I've seen a lot is, you know, too many like scaling errors, like too, too many or too much rounding. Yes. So and too much safety factor yep. at different at multiple parts of the equation. So if people are applying a 15% safety factor in their, you know, heating and cooling load calculation, yes. and then they import that into another spreadsheet or calc, and they just keep adding and these things together, skip, uh, adding safety factor, multiplying. The next thing you know, you could have equipment that is, you know, two to three times the size it needs to be. Yep. And that's just not, it's not going to be good. Your, your client's going to be paying too much. It's not going to operate correctly. Um, you know, like you said, short cycling on the air conditioning side, yep. refrigeration side. And that's kind of where, not just, Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jim. That's kind of where I went with like over-engineering was that was my thought process. Like, Oh, I'm going to put 10% on this calculation. Right. And then 10% on that. And then, 10% on whatever, and then you end up your 50%, 100%, whatever oversized at the end of the day because you, um, yep. 
you put and that's you know, over engineering or whatever being safe but that i guess like you said is kind of under engineering and being a little lazy as well um but yeah i get so, something that i see i feel like happens a lot in facilities so podcast yeah because i mean a lot of this stuff you do start to get to the hang of it and you're you get familiar with experience right. you, you'll know like certain size rooms with a certain layout is typically going to be a certain load or if you're doing like pipe and pressure calculations you know if you're just throwing out you know pressure drops for each like strainers mm-hmm. and um, different fittings and accessories but you know the errors i see are when you're rounding at every single step of the yeah. equation like if you're rounding for each individual fitting as you're adding it up and then at the end you're also applying yep. a safety factor yep. Yeah, that's why all these pumps are oversized. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder if this same kind of thing could be occurring in contractor estimates, where, <laughs> where we see, you know, well, this is a seven hundred dollars. We'll round it up to a, you know, on the estimating side, and then there's a risk factor on top of that, plus profit and overhead, and that's what's causing some of the, I don't know, what I think are high prices for well, contractors these days i don't it, know especially these days it comes yeah. it, it all comes you know engineering or contracting side of it, it's a risk mitigation tool right they're like oh well, we feel safer well we'll just round this and round this and whatever so we know we can't be under on but engineering yeah pigs get fat hogs get slaughtered <laughs> yeah yep but i think that's that's kind of where where it lands and you know, yeah, it's probably a, in a way, like Jim said, a lack of effort to say this is what it really takes. If it's a generating a estimate, cost estimate, you know, for work, or if it's designing a system, it's easier to just kind of round up and make sure you got a, a buffer. And I assume a lot of times that buffer gets really, really big. And then you have your own issues to deal with, you know. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm not saying you have to size things exactly for what you calculated not at right, all right. i'm just saying be be mindful yep. of how much extra safety factor and rounding you're doing and watch out for the multiplicative um, effects of doing some of that rounding too early on in your equations yeah. yep because it could really really result in very oversized equipment later on i agree completely <laughs> it's funny you made a point um earlier you know when when we were talking about this segment about you know you get the hang of it as you as you do it more man i know a guy just throws out exact exact required numbers for things and i go through i'm like how the hell did you know that or you know we were talking about an exhaust fan right for cooling a mechanical room (laughs) yeah i think it's gonna take this and i'm like yeah whatever i'll start kind of doing my own time like son of a he, right on. I'm like, what? Well, probably he uses the uh, psych chart as recreational reading too. <laughs> that, that's probably it, because you know when he can recite something as in outside air and RH condition is exactly 34 BTUs per pound. You know, without looking at anything, he must see it a lot. Yeah. Recreationally, that makes sense. <laughs> Mark, that's funny. That is funny. Um, true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it takes time. And I guess like to Jim's point, the more you do it, the more sensibility you have and the more understanding and the less rounding you'll probably do. And when you end at a number, 
you can look back and say this is way too oversized or whatever and know where you should be comparatively so helps prevent that stuff or you're just lazy and you just keep oversizing things i don't know that probably happens too uh, I, I don't know if it's being lazy it's just the nature of our yeah. discipline it's just you know we're not designing rockets for nasa so we you know i don't want to yeah. we don't need to be down to yep. like six significant figures and extremely precise yeah. you know what yeah. i mean like we're sizing air conditioners here but they're still so yeah and you know there's budgets and time constraints so you have to factor all that in but at the same time you just can't get you have to be mindful yeah. of how much how much safety factor you're putting in because it, it is very common we see it all the time yeah. you know most stuff is very oversized you know a lot of the installation installations i've seen i'd like to take um just a uh, maybe deeper dive into the control side of this some big mistakes that stick out to us in the control side both new and retrofit projects and basically you know we talk about using backnet systems but inside the backnet family you know the standard the ANSI 135 standard uh, there are compliant and there are non-compliant and there are certified and uncertified components, systems, workstations, applications, software, all of the above. So, you know, it's just like anything else. Uh, you know, your significant other wants a, a Louis Vuitton purse and you find one on eBay for 35 bucks. <laughs> Odds are it's not a Louis Vuitton purse. It yeah. might say it's Louis Vuitton, but it right. really isn't. And <laughs> someone with a discerning eye, probably your significant other, will figure it out in short order. So the same thing happens when you mix and match non-BTL, backnet testing laboratory, certified devices on a network where... Okay, and then we have to troubleshoot it. We have, why doesn't this stuff work? Why are there competing uh, commands or competing signals? And why, are, you know, how does this happen? Well, it happens because there, you know, even at the transport layer, sure, it shows up as a backnet packet, but at the DLL labor label level, it is not uh, what is being expected by uh, backnet certified device so listen I, i'm a, the biggest one of the biggest backnet advocates that i know and i think just like anything else it's a enormous uh, resource and a value but for design engineers for owners for everyone else just because it says it's backnet doesn't mean it's necessarily a hundred percent compliant and especially when you have backnet systems being offered by otherwise proprietary providers that are using secondary protocols on their network to do a large percentage of the heavy lifting, heavy data lifting and transport. Uh, it may not be the solution that is what you, that you're expecting. You know, that's an interesting point, Mark. Um, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought of it like that. Like to me, when you when you completely started the segment, I thought you were going to go towards like, like, okay, we can buy a, a nice quality whatever you know backnet system, 
or we can buy this other cheaper system. Like I didn't, it, you think it often occurs oh. where they think, okay, we, we think we're getting a good backnet system or is it just like, no, we know we're not, we're buying this and we think it's going to work good. But you know, down the road, you're like, crap, we, uh, that, you know, the whole like legacy I think system. Both, both happen. Yeah. Okay. You know, where first of all, an owner says, yeah, I want a backnet system and the, sales entity resource whatever you want to call it says yeah we're we're backnet compatible right that's a whole different issue <laughs> yeah, than a native yeah. backnet system we're backnet right. compatible means yeah. they can spew out backnet data points but, yeah. but it is not a native backnet system using backnet as a primary and only uh data transport system you know right. and then there are other uh companies companies technologies that don't use backnet at all but say we can provide a backnet port well that's worse yet um you basically bought a proprietary system that you can look at but and maybe you can even write to but you will depend on another backnet operator's workstation or a third-party device to be able to do that right yeah like my analogy would have been like oh we want oh i don't i don't know i i don't know my stuff like oh i want a louis vuitton whatever right but like you don't buy that you buy an off-brand knowing that it's an off-brand thinking that you'll still be it'll still work like it's still a whatever you know it'll hold up it'll be fine but it's not obviously and you find that out pretty quickly um down the road (laughs) yeah not not the oh i i'm i think i'm getting the name brand when really it's not because it's cheap as opposed to like intent you know Purposely buying the not name brand, thinking that it'll still get the job done in the thinking world of control. Purse is a purse. Oh, yeah, 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 or whatever. Purse These... is a purse, and people are buying it for its utility. Yeah, <laughs> that's my analogy. Maybe in your eyes, but let me know how that goes. I was going to say this is <laughs> this is great. <laughs> that was my attempted analogy, right? So I don't know. Hopefully, to our listeners, it made sense. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, I don't know, you know, but yeah, that's a good point, Mark. Um, and then I thought, you know, you know, for the for the listeners and for the episode, we kind of started, you know, alluding to like good applications or bad applications of good technology. I apologize. And you know, we were talking about condensing boilers and VFDs and, and so on and so forth. But I got a few questions for you guys. Like, um, I think we can probably all. St- have the same stance on wireless controls to, to some extent, right? Like the, the theory and that the technology is great. Like sensor can speak to sensor to controller without, you know, a hardwired connection, but obviously you're, you're putting yourself at risk as well. And I don't know how much detail we need to get into that one, but I, I do have more as well. Well, again, you're subject to the constraints of the, wireless device and typically they're you know mesh technology zigbee or something similar that uh in the right application sure they work but uh they're they do require maintenance batteries do you know go go dead and they're subject to the constraints of the the architectural constraints of the facility so yeah, now that's if I true. put up a new partition wall mm-hmm. what happens to my mesh network do i have a you know do i have to wire a repeater to the other side of the wall and especially in older buildings that are you know dense either stone or brick or 
you know, those kinds of things are actual plaster and lath. Um, the the performance goes down, right? For sure. Right. I just don't have any trust for the wireless stuff for critical things too, like that need to communicate all the time, which is pretty much everything we're talking about. <laughs> yep. What about like, um, okay, you know, going again on bad applications of good technology, like, um, I guess I can go like heat pumps, right? That's good technology, great technology in the right application. But like, is, are there bad, what could you, could you name any bad applications of that? And I'm putting you guys on the spot kind of for the podcast. It's a, it's a broad question though. Are you talking about geothermal or are you talking about? Um, air to air, residential, You're, what? Well, exactly. Okay, so I, I guess I don't know. I mean, it could be residential, it could be commercial, but you're right. Like, there's different types of heat pumps. So maybe, like to me, a bad application of a heat pump is an air to air in a climate where it's cold as crap out at certain times, right? Because you're not going to get. It, it goes towards like the condensing boiler, like the um, you know, documented efficiency. The best efficiency is whatever ninety point whatever for a boiler well obviously a heat pump you're gonna have a clp of whatever clean i think that's a huge point you know specifically with the air to air and cold climates um you know there's the, the heat pumps have come a long way with um the like low ambient options they yeah. have now to operate right. below zero degrees fahrenheit um but you still have to really look at the operating performance yes. you know some of them some of them may still not be rated at full heating output their nominal heating output at that temperature you right. really have to get into the literature and the data sheets to make sure you understand you know how this heat pump's going to run you know at a certain temperature mm-hmm. and unlike other uh heating equipment a heat pump will just a lot of them will just not work anymore it's not like you're you're not going to be able to meet you know, your, your heating demand, right. you know, if you're, it's not like, you know, if you undersize a boiler, you know, it's still going to run at a hundred percent. It just might not be able yeah. to, you know, keep the space at a certain temperature. You could just completely lose your heat pump if it, you know, if it's not the, not the right heat pump. Right. Um, and then you have things like defrost, you know, in those really cold temperatures, you, you, you know, you're pulling heat out of the space and melting the outdoor units coil. <laughs> You know what what's going on inside the space. So a lot of these different manufacturers handle these things a lot differently. And defrost in a very cold climate, you know, is often overlooked. Yeah, I would have never thought of that example. But uh, you you picked up exactly with what I was trying to like communicate. So yeah, <laughs> and then you know, like on water source heat pumps, a big reason why you do water source, whether it's geothermal um, or if you're just doing a water source heat pump with auxiliary boilers and cooling towers mm-hmm. is, you know, you, you better hope you have some simultaneous heating and cooling going on. Otherwise it's probably not going to make economic sense as compared to other systems like a four pipe boiler chiller system, you know, unless there's you know, the heat pumps, you know, if you're not doing geothermal and you're just doing a boiler and cooling tower, mm-hmm. you typically need, some simultaneous heating and cooling it better be like an office building where you have interior spaces that are always in cooling or you know maybe it's an apartment with a lot of glazing and you'll have some in the shoulder months you'll have some 
um, at points of the day where some aren't heating and others aren't cooling. Yep. It's important to, to model those to, to make sure it's going to operate as you intend it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like the like the heat pump. You know, this is great technology, and they can be extremely efficient. But it's got to be applied correctly, like you said, or else you know, yeah, well, great. You know, this heat pump can do all this cool stuff: ground source, air source, whatever you want, whatever it is. It's got to be applied correctly. And there's, like I said, I figured plenty of applications where that doesn't happen. I, I know, like even for us, I mean, um, on the residential level, I had a family that was, you know looking at getting pricing for air source heat pumps um up here you know in new york and i don't know like in the winter time when you need the heat and it's zero out or 10 out you might as well just have electric heat <laughs> to right. me you know what i mean yeah because and, and yeah you do, that's i don't know that's kind of where i was going with that whole heat pumps segue and jim took it and yeah ran with it. it's in, it yeah, it's interesting because you know there's a big push for electrification of heating, and there's just so there's a big push of of heat pumps. You know, they're with the intent of well, our grids we're moving towards a cleaner grid, mm-hmm. so they want to electrify the heating, and you have some regulatory forces um, with some some areas like not allowing for gas hookups to new buildings. Um, so it, it's interesting. You know, the the heat pumps are in the spotlight right now. There's a lot going on with. Uh, with you know both water and air source heat pumps, and I think it's cool because they'll definitely shine in the right application. Obviously, um, well, that's a great example. But, the whole heat pump discussion, Jim, about you know looking at the load side of things. You know, so much of these things, uh, they're not directly impacting the load that's meant to be served, but they're changing the technology to satisfy it. You know, more economically, more efficiently, like the water source heat mm-hmm. pump you were talking about. You need interior and exterior zones or you know, some variability in the loads to really maximize that. But, uh, yeah, but other things are, we're not doing anything about the load, but we're just, you know, like a, the boiler resets or something we were talking about. We're, we're not changing the load. We're just satis- or changing the rate at which the load is satisfied. And sometimes that's not a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. I like it. I have a question, and this is some technology that seemed like a good idea at the time, and you know, I I, I only saw it one time. Um, have has anybody else ever heard of a tri water system? No. Where nope. Uh, heating cool heat pump loop with a boiler and a closed uh, circuit cooling tower on it that would use the sprinkler water for the heat pump loop. And there's one actually installed in Rochester. I read like the fire sprinkler. Yep. I remember hearing about just this concept many years ago. Never proposed yeah. it, but there is one in operation. Huh? Yeah. And I'm yeah. confused. Yeah. So <laughs> instead of running a separate circulating loop, there's just a return loop uh, from the heat pumps and the fire suppression sprinkler system distribution lines are used as part of the heat pump loop inside a building interesting so i can't remember there's about 50 heat pumps in the building and yeah the tri-water system so i mean it was a really tough control job at the time this is going back into the late 80s um just because there were so many people to satisfy you know the fire marshals involved the 
GC, the owner. I mean, it was a, it was a tough job and it, and it worked, but you know, based on just the pain of, uh, the install and the commissioning and all that, I I've never seen another one. And so, yeah, I could, I'm just, I have so many things going through my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> all the potential issues. Right. Exactly. But testing like a fire pump with all this is going exactly. on. Yep. So, I mean, the focus of that is to, to just reduce initial costs <clears throat> of the that, that was system. The right. Yeah. Okay. That's like, correct. oh, we're putting this piping in anyways for fire suppression. Right. So why would yeah. we also put piping in for HVAC? Yeah, right. I could see the ancillary yep. costs of that. Like Jim and Mark, you guys were saying, eating into <laughs> the... You know, yeah. Time. Hmm. Yeah, I can't think of any projects I've worked on where there would be a savings there. Well, it, it, this was another sounds good on paper. You know, another. So the, yeah. Story time, I guess. <laughs> Back in the good old days, I mean, in the '70s, okay, there was actually a system called a heat of light system that used the fluorescent lights and the. Um, so basically, electric heating. Yeah, well, they, they would diffuse over those uh, to provide reheat, right? So in the middle of the night, when it got cold, all the lights in the building would come on, and that was their reheat to uh, basically warm the building up. Wow. I actually worked on a couple of those way back in the day, too. But good ideas at the time, but, you know, did they catch on? Yeah, probably not so much. Yeah. Well, that's why it'd be interesting to see, like, kind of a summary report of both these these stories, you know? Like, you know, how yeah. did the costs come in? You know, did it all these years later, did the tri water system work, you know, meet expectations? The same with the other one. That's interesting. I mean, when you say, you know, where the, the time period that it happened, in a way, makes sense. I mean, it's not like you, you had a super efficient LED light and the lights were already there and whatever. So they're no, just saying, that's you know correct. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're saying, okay, well, this is, it's here, right? Good point. We could use it. So, I mean, I see it like then, yeah, I could see why it was like a, a thought and an attempt or whatever. Um, yeah, I guess it's not like as crazy as I, as I initially responded to. <laughs> well, it was just, you know, uh, we were actually looking at the building to do a performance contract and you'd go by in the, middle of the night and that's what led led me into it you go by in the middle of the night and sometimes the lights were on sometimes they were off and what in the world's going on with this mm -hmm. and then uh had to go back and do some more investigation into the original design and that's why there were, yeah you know, that was there it's, it's electric reheat yeah, yeah it is electric yeah. Reheat. yeah and you have exactly. it there already so yeah why well, put more infrastructure in because yep. our lights make a lot of heat anyways so i get it mm. that makes sense so, I um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> One, I got, I guess uh, we're probably getting closer, like an hour, our hour limit. And I don't want to bore our listeners. Um, not, don't worry. not that we're boring. I think this is great stuff. What about like, okay, going back to the good technology, great technology, magnetic bearing chillers. Is there a bad application of, of them? Like, could you put those in a bad, you know, I, I don't know. That was something that I was just pondering as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about for our podcast can you is is that something like no those can just they shine they're amazing no matter what you do i would think or, they would be highly dependent on load but you guys know a lot yeah. more about this technology than i do i'd love to have one for my house you just can't find one small enough 
But like even <laughs> at full load, their efficiencies are are they better than your standard, you know, centrifugal chip? Probably a little bit, right? Because you're not you don't have an oil system and all that jazz and whatever. You know, it's been a while since I've really uh, done a hardcore analysis, yeah. but the last one I did, I do believe the oil bearing chillers were better at full load. Really? You know, especially you know if you have yeah. a constant yeah. load. Yeah. You, you know, yeah, I think you're a better off op- because there's there's a pretty good premium you pay for a, a this is true. Chiller. Yeah. You know, I haven't you know looked at pricing within the last mm-hmm. year or so, but I imagine it's still there. Um. So yeah, I could see where you have a constant cooling load, maybe in a process application. Yep. You know, I think they always pretty much make sense in comfort cooling because yes. you have so much part load operation, and that's where they really shine. But if you are in a process where you have a constant load, and no, I have to think about that because even if you have a constant load, if you're running in the winter, you have right suppressed. Well, if you if you have right. access to lower condensed water temperature, okay. sure your your chilled water load may not change, but your compressor load is reduced. Right. So, I don't know. It maybe I'd have to look into that more. But that was kind of what no. came to my mind too, Jim. Is like I'm just thinking about this. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah. Even if it's a constant load, mag, I I thought a magnetic bearing chiller would still be beneficial. But you got to incorporate yeah, I, all that stuff, and I don't know. <laughs> so I brought it up. <laughs> I think it no, depends. That, that's a good one. Yeah. So if anybody listening made it this far into the podcast, which I hope you guys do, um, and you and you know the answer to this, comment. Where are they supposed please. to comment? On on our social media or whatever, uh, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Facebook where I post this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're on Spotify or iTunes or you know, um, anywhere listening to podcasts, go look us up on LinkedIn and Facebook and let us know your thoughts on this episode. If you have the answer to that, <laughs> what will, what will it will be uh, controversial. Yeah, I, I hope it will be. <laughs> Is there anything else you guys want to bring up for this episode? Oh my gosh, what is not to bring up? What about uh, I don't know? You guys see a lot of O2 trim being applied. Well, there's yes. stuff. I mean, good. To industrial size boiler. Okay, so more on the appropriate side of it, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, you know, where you're producing high pressure steam or you're firing um, biomass or have a fluidized bed boiler, that's that's almost standard mandatory, you know, to have continuous O2 monitoring and trim. When you get down to, you know, a package boiler, 250 horsepower, 300 horsepower, it makes sense, and we see a lot of customers do it, and it definitely works. So, um, you know, if, if the economics drive it, if your boiler fires, you know, 365 days a year for any reason, you know, jump right on it. Okay, what about uh, magnets for water treatment, or is that just a bad application using a bad technology? <laughs> Explain how it works. I, I don't really know. I've just I haven't seen them in a long time, but they used to be out there yeah. in some places. It was oh, more yeah. of a joke, which might lead into instead of doing <laughs> bad applications of, of good bad technology, technology, why don't we do like good like the times where something was applied and there was no reasonable reason it should have worked, but it just operated perfectly. Do we have any of those? 
Good applications of bad technology. Yes, that would be what I'm looking for. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. Dude, that's something I got to think about. Maybe future podcast episode. No, I feel or a segment that stood out to like, hey, these guys said they're going to do this. We're like, there's no way this is going to work. And by golly, using the lights as reheat was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess uh, the single installation you know about. I think another thing we need to have on the list that is timely and appropriate is a discussion of filtration and ventilation treatments in the reopening after COVID. Because we're, we're talking to a couple of pretty large entities right now that have completely uh, discarded their DC. They, they've disabled their DCV uh, programs. To keep everybody safe. To keep everybody the safe. Demand control ventilation using CO2 yep. sensors and the like. Okay, yep. Correct. And so they're back to, you know, 20% outside air. And I'd like to have a discussion about that, you know, higher efficiency filtration. In my mind, that's not necessarily a good solution because, you know, airborne virus, you're not going to filter no that chance. out. What about sterilization, UV, spot UV, UV in air handlers, or, or anything else? I think uh, it would be timely for us to you know, rally or put our thoughts together and, and produce the next podcast. I think that'd be a really fun podcast. And I want to start rambling about it now, but I I feel like I shouldn't. So So you know how they, so I'll, I'll, I'll open the discussion back in the civil war, right? Uh Uh-huh. Let's go back to the civil war. There were times, no antibiotics, right. There were no antibiotics. Yep. There was no formal anesthesia Mm -hmm. and it was a extremely brutal war. You know, yes, the, more people the, died from right yeah. from infections. You know, amputations. So during the, the in the Civil War, field hospitals they would bubble carbolic acid, you know, uh, or or wipe down with carbolic acid to reduce uh, infection. Which it worked because it killed everything. Basically, it was a you know a sterilizer um, to you know. If it, something was dirty, you could wipe it down with carbolic acid. It killed everything, including any living tissue that it was touching. But, you know, they, that was their disinfectant mm. at the time. Now, I'm not advocating that we put carbolic acid into the air. I'm just saying that, you know, there is some argument to introduction or, or sterilizing the airstream in some way. It's going to cost too much. No one's ever going to do it. Not that specific example. I'm just saying in general. That's my thought. I don't know that that's going to be an option to say it costs too much. Uh, yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, if it's government regulated, mandated, yes. But for as long as it's not, I would say people are just going to not. I mean, I don't know. Like it all comes down to dollars, and as horrible as that may sound. <laughs> well, hey, money's green too, know. you know, and so it's definitely uh, a factor in it all. But Mark, your your knowledge of history is, is impressive. But what I like I know I, like I would have never thought is when he tells something, it's like he was there. Like I've heard him talk about <laughs> half the like, time I was. Like, you know, at the foot of the pyramids with the bellows cooling pharaohs. Mark describes it like he was there. <laughs> Mark's like, and that's how we used to do a Well, no, I I I I mean I visualized this stuff, you know. And especially when you read, not, 
you know, when you read it, I don't know, that's the way I always read was like, I would be so immersed in things that like, wow, you can, you know, these guys in the field hospitals, you can, mm. you know, hear the screams and the, you know, when they describe, you know, right. a good writer describes the, the saw that he, that the surgeon's using. I'm thinking, okay, enough. That's pretty, pretty significant. And, uh, you know, it sticks in your mind. Yeah. Well, it was a compliment. Definitely Mark. something. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, something to think about. Yeah, I think I think I know what our next episode might have. Or, we're, I don't know. That's definitely a good podcast discussion. I think we're going to wrap this episode up. I I think we covered a lot. I hope our listeners took something away from this. I think it was very insightful, um, enjoyable. A lot to talk about. And we could probably keep going, but I don't think we... We need to keep it drag, you know, keep the podcast much longer. Yeah. So with that, thank you guys for your insight and thank you for our listeners for tuning in. Um, like I said, if you guys have any comments after listening to this, look us up on Facebook or LinkedIn, VS Energy. We post all our episodes there and, you know, find this one and tell us what you think about it. We'd love to hear your insight. So thank you very much, everybody. Have a great day.